Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen Synagogue, composed, composed of both uh, Cyrians, Alexandrians, some from, uh, um, help me out, Cilicia, golly, and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. And then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him and took him before the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him, and they saw his face was like a face of an angel. Will you pray? Our Lord and our God, we ask for your spirit to be upon us that we may see and perceive the message of what Stephen proclaimed, the goodness of your gospel and the trueness of your son. Be with us, anoint us with your spirit that we may receive the blessing that comes through the preaching of your word. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. We are going to be looking at the story of Stephen today. We're going to dive in. Actually, we're going to start with chapter 7. Chapter 7, because we're going to look at this trial. Uh, And so really, the scripture that we just read at the end of chapter 6 is the introduction for the message. Let me ask you a question. How do you handle being falsely accused? How's a Christian supposed to handle that? In the Middle East... Uh, One Christian is killed every six minutes. And those countries like Iran, Jordan, Syria, Christians are routinely targeted by arson, terrorists, bombings, murder, rape. Their businesses, their homes, their property destroyed as believers in Christ are regularly thrown into prison or killed for unjust causes. And this anti-Christian sentiment shockingly, is beginning to seep into Israel, of all places. A nation formerly thought to be a safe haven for free speech and the free practice of one's faith. Since 2015, Christians have experienced similar acts of violence in Israel and similar kinds of persecution by radical Orthodox Jewish groups because the church is flourishing. The church is growing. And wherever the church grows, there is opposition. The church experiences opposition. Now, the story that we're looking at today is nothing new for a Jewish Christian. Nothing new. In fact, this whole idea of being persecuted by your kindred, by your kinsmen, it goes all the way back to thousand years. We're going to look at Stephen, who is now the first official martyr of the Christian church, of course, after Jesus. And the story instructs us on how, as believers, to respond, to handle false accusations when they come our way. How do we respond when enemies attack us from without and within? So quickly, the cast of characters, the members of the Freedmen Synagogue, which uh, Patrick dutifully mangled and, and 
Thanks, Pat. The Cyrenians and Alexandrians. Who are they? Well, they're North Africans. They're, they're um, Jews who have imported uh, into Jerusalem from North Africa. They have relocated from there. And Cilicia is Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and, of course, Asia. Now, these are folks who have relocated from their Greek or African lands, and they have relocated to Jerusalem, and they're Hellenists. They're, they're what are called Hellenized diaspora or Hellenized Jews. Why is that important? Because they were second-class Jews in Israel. In Jerusalem, they were thought to be not as pure. And so they have a particular interest, a particular motivation to prove that they are good, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Torah-observant Jews. And so one of the things they do is they get into an argument with Stephen who is trying to show them that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. Now, they are, they are, according to the story, unable to withstand or stand up against his wisdom and the arguments that he puts on the table. They can't answer them. They're unable to refute the work of the Spirit in Stephen's ministry. Stephen is a deacon, yes, but he is an anointed deacon. God is doing amazing, powerful works through the ministry and the life of Stephen, Right? They cannot refute that. They can't refute the testimony of the Jews who have found Jesus, their Messiah. And so when they can't win the argument, they do what we do. They attack his character. They slander him and bring false accusations against him. And so chapter 7, verse 1 the high priests, now in this trial where Stephen is dragged before these people just like Jesus was, he is dragged before this high court of Israel, and the high priest asks, are these allegations true? Now notice how Stephen defends himself. Stephen is going to defend himself by defending the gospel. He is going to defend himself by defending Jesus and so he makes his case biblically. He starts out in verse 2 by saying, Brothers and fathers, listen. Listen to this case that I'm about to make. And then in verses 4 through 8, he makes a case that they are the children of Abraham. Oh, they want to hear this. Because their salvation is guaranteed in their Abrahamic lineage. They are saved by virtue of the fact that they were born into Abraham and they observe the Torah. They observe Moses' law. So now, this warms their heart. And then he recounts their time in Egypt, beginning with Jacob and his family in verses 9 through 16. So far, so good. He's not doing bad. He's showing that he's a nationalist Jew. He's a patriotic Jew. And he is telling the Jews that the story that they rehearse with each other every single week, all the time. And then he recounts their time in Egypt, beginning with Jacob and, and Joseph's family. Yes, and then he moves on to Moses. And he reminds them that Moses, the first prophet of the people, the first prophet of Israel, God's chosen deliverer, was rejected by the people. Now, the mood changes. Wait a minute. Where's he going with this? The first prophet of Israel, God's chosen deliverer, rejected by the very people that he was sent to save. Children of Abraham? Yes. 
receivers of the Torah, Moses' law and the covenants? Yes. But so were the people who were in the wilderness who rejected Abraham or who rejected Moses. So Moses is now the archetype. Moses is the prototype of this new deliverer because Moses says this, someday there's going to come a prophet like me. He's going to come like me. And here's your job. You are to listen to him. But these folks are not listening to Jesus. And this is where he's leading the conversation. So Moses did a couple of things. One, he prophesied that there would be a prophet like himself that would come someday in whom they were supposed to listen. And he also instituted the entire sacrificial system around the tabernacle. The tabernacle based on the pattern uh, he had seen in the heavenly sanctuary. So now all of this whole long story that he recounts for Israel is leading them to this inexorably. Number one, the true temple is the people, not the building. The true temple is the people, not the building. Their identity is tied to that building. Their identity is tied to the laws that govern the protocols of that building. And they cannot let it go. And so when he quotes Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2 in chapter 7, 49 and 50, he says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? God says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. You're going to build me a house? Yeah. That's irony. The Almighty God. And what is he doing? He is trying to take them back to 1 Kings 8, 27. Solomon has just built the temple, which is the permanent sanctuary. It is the tabernacle, except it's permanent now. It is an actual temple. So everything they did in the tabernacle, they now do in the temple. And in this wonderful, beautiful prayer of dedication to God, such a powerful dedication. Go back and read the whole thing. But this is what he says. He says, but will God live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this temple that I have built. So when the temple is dedicated, Solomon notes that the God of the universe who is omnipresent, whom the highest heavens cannot contain, will not be enshrined in a temple. What is the temple there for? The temple is there to point backwards. It's, it's the fulcrum. It, it points backwards to the garden because how did God dwell with people in the garden? It was his manifest presence. God dwelled. He walked with Adam and Eve. And when God would manifest his presence, that garden was a sanctuary. This is why the tabernacle and the temple are covered in images of the garden. And then the temple points forward. It points forward to a day in which God's dwelling will be among men again. It points forward to a day when God will pour out his Holy Spirit, not in one spot on earth, but on all flesh. This is Joel 2.28. This happened in Acts chapter 2. And this is where he's trying to lead them. He's trying to bring them along and show them. God has fulfilled this promise the God who exceeds the boundaries of the created universe can't be enshrined in your temple. And God has poured himself out on all men. Jesus declared himself to be the fulfillment of the temple in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, 19 and 21. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And they said, you're crazy. It took us 40 years to build this temple and it's still under construction. And Jesus, and, and John says this, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
Now, Paul picks up on this and realizes now the Holy Spirit has been poured out on humanity, old and young, female, male, new, not so new. I mean, every person from every tribe, the Holy Spirit has now been poured out on everyone and the people of God are the temple. First Corinthians 3.16, he says, don't you yourselves know that you all, that you there is plural. If you have a King James version, it probably, it doesn't say thou, it says ye. Because in the old English, they could distinguish between singular and plural you. You and I can't, but it means you all, the whole body. You are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. The spirit of God lives in you. And unless you think that's an analogy, he goes on to say, now, if anyone destroys this temple, if anyone destroys this church, if anyone destroys the people of God, they will be destroyed. <laughs> so he takes this pretty seriously. Over in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, he says, or do you not know that your body, now he's not talking about corporately. He's not talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about you, your individual physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong to Christ, he says. You are a walking temple. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, it says, The household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, what's the whole structure? The household. It's the people. Being joined together grows into a holy temple unto the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The whole structure is the Spirit-filled community, the church, God's people, this is the temple right here. This is why we meet in gymnasiums. This is the reason why we don't put a lot of emphasis on developing physical temples because the New Testament teaches that the Holy Spirit lives in the human heart. The Holy Spirit now lives on in everyone who believes in Christ and he dwells manifestly in the life of the church. Peter agrees with this too in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 7. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by the people, but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's temple language. So in the New Testament, God doesn't dwell in houses built by human hands. God dwells in the people. Amen. You believe God dwells in you. Well, you're a temple. You're a walking, talking temple. Now, Stephen is trying to help them see this. In verse 40, 49 and 50, the reason why he quotes Isaiah 66, and, which is based on a psalm, the reason he quotes this is because he's trying to help these men whose identity is tied to that second temple. He's trying to help them to see Christ has fulfilled it. And now God has poured his spirit out on everyone. Everyone who believes receives the Spirit and is baptized in the Spirit. So Stephen is trying to help them to see that God has fulfilled his purpose. Why bring all this up? Because this is central to his case. If you don't believe that God's Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, if you don't believe that the Holy Spirit is available to whosoever will, regardless of their ethnicity, their gender, where they were born, their family history, if you don't believe that, then you're going to reject this message. Jesus has poured out the gift of God's restoring presence. God's restoring presence. 
Number two, Stephen observes that there will always be internal opposition to God's plan. He observes that there will always be internal opposition to God's plan. There is a faction of rebels who have always resisted the work of the Holy Spirit. Beginning with the Hebrew children in the wilderness all the way up to Stephen's day. And Stephen mentions those folks in the wilderness who rejected Moses. And so if the new prophet is going to be like Moses, he's going to be rejected too. And the apostate and idolatrous generations who rejected the messages of the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Hosea. And they were apostate and they worshipped false gods. And what is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying, that's you. (laughs) That's you. He's saying to the Sanhedrin, you are the descendants of these people who reject God's plan and God's purpose. Notice 51 and 53, he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. What a way to start a sermon. This is actually his closing. He says, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, those uh, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. This is a direct indictment. You're the ones who killed the new prophet, the prophet to end all prophets. He says, you received the law under the direction of angels, but you have not kept it. So they are the children of Abraham, yes. They have received the laws and the covenants of Moses, yes, but so were the rebels in the wilderness who rejected Moses' leadership. And now Stephen says, that's you. You are the descendants of those people. Listen, I'm concerned about cultural opposition to the gospel. I'm concerned about it. Now, I open with uh, some facts from the Middle East. In Middle Eastern countries, it is, it's illegal to be a Christian. It's illegal to be a Christian, punishable by prison or death. And Christianity is almost non-existent in the Middle East, with the exception of the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. Christianity is almost non-existent there. So I'm concerned about cultural opposition to the gospel. It is just a biblical principle, and it's also a historical fact. It's a statistical fact that where the gospel goes in freely, it flourishes. And so I'm concerned about our country. I'm concerned about this nation. I'm concerned about possible legislation that might come our way that would not allow us to preach the gospel and its value system. I am concerned about that. Because the gospel will flourish and the church will flourish in a place where the Bible is read as an open book and we can practice our faith freely. And a central, central driving impulse of the Christian faith is to evangelize your neighbor. And if that becomes outlawed, I'm concerned about that. I'm equally concerned, though, about internal opposition to the church. I'm equally concerned about opposition that comes from within. Now, we are talking here in this story. We're not talking about the Greeks and the Romans. We're not talking about uh, those, those folks afar off in Spain or whatever, or China or whatever. We're, we're talking about Jews. These are the people of God. He's already made the case. You are, yes, you are the children of Abraham. Yes, you did receive the covenants and the law. But you, the people of God, are rejecting the purposes of the Spirit. And so I'm concerned about this as well. I think there is a danger for people of faith to become 
recalcitrant, inflexible religious people. We face several dangers as the church grows. As the church grows and makes inroads into the community, we face several dangers. The first one is this, the danger of becoming inflexible and unmoved. The danger of becoming inflexible and unmoved. This is why he starts out by saying, you stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people. In other words, how could you be unmoved by this message? Could the message that God has fulfilled his promise to pour his spirit out on all flesh? How could the message that God is now, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61, that God is now welcoming the Gentile nations into the family of God, how could that be offensive to you? How could it be offensive to you to know that God has fulfilled the purpose of this temple by pouring out his spirit? And so they just become inflexible and unmovable. Religious people are tempted to become intractable and just stuck. Every person in this room who practices their faith, who is a person of faith, every one of us have this temptation to just not allow the Spirit to move us, to move us on to the new thing. This is why Isaiah prophesied, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to do a new thing among you. God is up to a new thing. And then we also face the danger of resisting the work of the Spirit. Now, sinners, people who are sinners, resist the work of the Spirit in terms of conviction. Because what does the Spirit do? He convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Sin because we're sinners. Righteousness because there's a holy standard we have transgressed. And judgment because short of repentance and faith, judgment is on the way. For sure. And then he also convicts the religious He convicts the house of faith. He convicts us of what? Of not living under Jesus' commands, not living under the reign of Christ as the king. (laughs) Because when I have problems, when I'm disobedient to the word and I'm disobedient to what God says in his word, that means that I just want to be my own king today. I want to call the shots today. I want to run the show. And so it's the danger of resisting the work of the Spirit to draw us ever more, ever more into the presence and the glory and the joy of obedience. And this is my last one, the danger of being rich in knowledge and poor in obedience. They are rich in knowledge. Notice what he says in verse 53. He says, you received the law under the direction of angels through the angelic mediation, but you haven't kept it. So they're lavish. They have an abundance of knowledge. They have an abundance of the word. They have an abundance of the covenants. And they haven't kept it. Now that's odd, isn't it? Because these are the people who do keep it. (laughs) These are the people who pride themselves in meticulously, fastidiously keeping every letter of it. How have they not kept it? They haven't kept faith with the spirit of it, which is the spirit of mercy and love and justice. They haven't kept faith with that. And they haven't kept faith to receive their Messiah, God's anointed messenger that he is sending to them. They've rejected him, so they've broken it. They've broken it. And so the opposition to the Christian church is from without, and it's also from within. You and I face the danger of becoming rich in knowledge and poor in obedience. And this is something we have, to, we have to keep guard against. Next, number three, slanderous accusations turn into outrage. 
So now they're just falsely accusing him. As Pat had read, they're falsely accusing him. They have witnesses, these trumped up stories. They have grossly misread or misrepresented his gospel. And now it's just turning into outrage. Do you know why our culture is so full of rage? Do you know why? I know why. It's because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We live in an outrage culture today. You zig when you should have zagged, brother, you'll get canceled. Dr. Seuss, bye-bye. Right? What's next? Schoolhouse rock? What is the source and root of all this cultural rage people have toward each other? What is the source and what is the root of it? I, I, this may seem simplistic, and I'm just a simple country preacher, folks. But... <laughs> What are you laughing at? <laughs> uh, so the first reason is conviction and guilt for the truth about ourselves. When we feel conviction and guilt because someone says, hey, did you know you're this way? Like when my wife says, hey, did you know that's super annoying? I just, I'm like, no, it's not. It's awesome. <laughs> you know, like that's my response. We don't want to hear, hey, you're a sinner. You're transgressing here. This is wrong. If that attitude, that's wrong. We don't want to hear that. Now, Stephen, firstly, has addressed them. He's told them the truth about themselves. He's saying, you're the people. You're the, you're the descendants of the people who always resist what the Holy Spirit is doing. You're the ones and, and sometimes that, look, if you're not willing or ready to surrender to that and, and come under that and let the Lord bring correction, and then also just redemption, just growth. If you're not willing to do that, what happens is you and I get mad. We're like, how dare you talk to me like that? Like, how dare you say that about me? We get angry at people. And so the first thing that they experience is outrage over the fact that the Spirit is through Stephen is bringing conviction over them and their response to God. And the second reason or source for outrage is intolerance of the truth about Christ. At the end of the day, this is really the key. <laughs> I mean, this is really the key to people's rage. This is Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, in verse 55, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing, not sitting, but standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then what did they do? They lost their mind. They could not hear this. What? First of all, you called us, the people of God, we're the righteous ones, and you called us a bunch of sinners? You said that we're of the generation of Isaiah, who, that Isaiah prophesied that we're stiff-necked people. You said that we're the people who reject God like the people in the wilderness rejected Moses. You said that about us. And then you're saying that this guy that we crucified on a cross <laughs> is the exalted king of the universe at the right hand of the father. They, they, this is outrageous. And so what do they do? They rush toward him. They put their hands over their ears and literally like children begin to scream, la, 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 I can't hear you. You know, like they just don't want to hear this. They can't hear it. And when they can't win the argument and they can't turn to, and they turn to slandering and false accusations of Stephen's character, 
then they turn to violent outrage. But here we see the Christian response. This is always the right response. This is always the right response, no matter what level the accusation is coming toward you. The proper response is forgiveness as we entrust ourselves to Christ. This is always the right way to go. Verse 59, says, While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. And after saying this, he died. He fell asleep. This is always the right response. How could he do this? What a tragedy. But Christianity, listen, is the only religion in the history of the world where forgiveness is the central practiced ethic. It's the only religion in the history of the world where forgiving someone is the central practiced ethic of the faith. And this is what All he's doing is imitating Jesus, who as he breathed his last on the cross, was breathing forgiveness for the very people who lashed him and nailed him to that cross. And Stephen is following his Lord. This is always the right response. Forgiveness. Because unforgiveness is a prison. Unforgiveness uh, forgiveness is a prison that you make for yourself. In Thomas Costain's History of the Three Edwards, he tells the story of Reynold III, a 14th century duke who was grossly overweight. His subjects nicknamed him Reynold the Fat. His younger brother Edward led a successful uh, revolt against him, and instead of killing Duke Reynold, Edward built a room around him in Newkirk Castle and promised He could have his kingship back. You can have your kingship back, but you have to lose weight. The room had no door. It just had a slim opening and a few windows that any normal-sized person could get out of, but Reynold couldn't. And day after day, King Edward ordered that the most sumptuous, delicious meals be brought to him all day long, as much as he wanted. And when asked about his unusual cruelty, Edward replied, my brother is not my prisoner. My brother can get out of this prison anytime he wants. All he has to do is say no to the meals. And unforgiveness is like that. It's a prison you build for yourself. And you can get out anytime you want. But to do so, you have to stop feasting on the offense You have to stop blaming others for what they did or what they accused you of. You can get out of that prison of resentment and bitterness anytime you want by simply letting the other person go. Let it go. We have a couple of examples of churches that have done this in the last few years. An Amish school was shot up by some crazy guy a few years back. And he went into a school full of these beautiful little Amish children and he shot them up. How could a person do that? You know how he could have done that? Because 20 years earlier, he attended that school and a girl said something mean to him. And for 20 years, he nursed that mean thing that she said and it became a cancer of violence and rage in him. And you know what happened after he did that? Is the family issued a statement of forgiveness. When asked why they forgave him, they said, because that's what Jesus would do. Jesus forgives. Another uh, case is similarly in Charleston, South Carolina, there was a black church. 
a study group, a Bible study group, and it was infiltrated by a young white dude who came in and he was a crazy racist and he sat there for an hour looking into the faces of the people that an hour later he shot to death because he hated them because of the color of their skin. And afterwards, you would, as you would expect, man, you would expect just this moral outrage from the culture and the church. And Charleston issued a statement of forgiveness. They forgave that young man. They even went to the jail where he was, the prison where he was being kept, and offered him forgiveness. And they've tried to connect with him ever since. This is the way of Jesus. Now, you have two very different Christian congregations. The Amish in Lancaster... Right, Pennsylvania, very different from Charleston, South Carolina, very different congregations, but both governed by the same central ethic, because this is what Christians do. We forgive. Let me ask you a question. Is there anybody that you need to make your case to? Because Stephen does make his case. Is there anybody you need to sit down with and explain? Is there anybody you need to sit down and say, hey, listen, I'm sorry, but you're in the wrong And then is there anyone that you need to say, God, no matter what, no no matter what they think of me, I forgive them. I forgive them. Let's pray. Father, we know that Stephen is with you right now in heaven. And he beholds the face of Christ. The very Christ who stood and applauded him. And welcomed him into glory. And someday we want to be there as well. And Father, today we just want to, we just want to say thank you for his example of forgiveness. And God, we, we also want to forgive those who have trespassed against us. Would you do that in your heart right now? Just take a moment and say, I, for, I, I forgive you. They may not be here. They may not be able to hear you. But you let them go right now and leave that prison of resentment. In bitterness. Leave it. Let them go. God, we forgive. God, I forgive those folks who have assumed things about me that aren't true. God, I forgive those folks who have made judgments about my motives that weren't the case. I forgive those folks who have become outraged and angry at me because I pointed out something that was true about them. God, I forgive. I let them go. And God, help us to live in the light and the free air. Breathe the free air of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.